BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This podcast is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts, including Flash Forward, a podcast about the future. You can find all those podcasts in the podcast family at boingboingpodcasts.com. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 79. The weird thing about norms is until they are challenged, until there is a reason to question them, you rarely notice them at all. In the United States, public bathrooms are divided by gender. In the past, they were divided in other ways, of course, most notably by skin color. But today, they are still divided into men's rooms and women's rooms. If you're a man, you go into one. If you are a woman, you go into the other. And that's what is expected of us. That's what most of us have done many times. And most of us up until recently have done so without question. It just seems normal. That's the way it's supposed to be. But the idea of dividing bathrooms by gender is actually pretty new. It was invented around the same time as cars and elevators and light bulbs, which is to say it wasn't always this way. It all started like so many things with the Industrial Revolution, which brought factories and factory jobs to millions of people. And without indoor plumbing, or any plumbing really, those people, including nearly 2 million child laborers, had to use outdoor facilities that dumped into latrines and cesspools. And for the most part... Those kinds of toilets were like porta-potties today, designed for one user at a time. What we did not have, because the technology of plumbing did not uh, enable this until the 1870s, were multi-user restrooms. This is law professor Terry Kogan. Terry Kogan, uh, professor of law at the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. And you were a lawyer in Boston before this? I was indeed. I practiced for about seven years before I started teaching. Kogan is an expert on the history of gender laws, LGBT rights, and bathroom norms in the United States. He's researched these topics for more than 20 years and produced several publications with titles like Sex Separation in Public Restrooms, Law, Architecture, and Gender. And according to Kogan, the very idea of a multi-user bathroom, or as they called them back then, 
privies was completely new to the people of the 19th century. Right, they were always single uh, privies. Uh, sometimes separated by sex, there'd be a man, a male, and a female sort of privy next to one another. But these privies would always empty into cesspools. That is to say, there were no public work systems to deal with, with sewage and take them away, t- take sewage away, transport sewage away from the factory. Uh, and because of that, there were no multi-user restrooms. But that would soon change because plumbing technology rapidly advanced as cities grew and urbanization spread, and a push for better city sanitization began to produce new citywide water systems across the country. Uh, and that, that possibility, the technology for uh, public sanitation and uh, uh, public sewer systems, only evolved in the United States by the mid and late 1870s. Multi-user bathrooms are more efficient, which is always important to factories, and they are more sanitary, which was very important to city planners of this era, still trying to figure out how to stop the spread of diseases. And so, once multi-user, sanitary, factory bathrooms attached to city plumbing were possible, factories wanted to install them right away. But this presented a host of new problems, social problems. They wondered... How do we create these spaces in a way that makes the most sense for the most people? We have to design a space where people can meet their basic human needs, but we need those spaces in public too. Uh, And it is trying to um, figure out uh, how can we deal with these sensitive, uh, psychologically, anxiety-producing human needs uh, in the public realm. And this problem was not limited to factories. Public restrooms were extremely rare in Western cities in the 19th century, even after the technology to create them became available. As more people spent more time in cities, doing their business wherever they could find an alleyway or a wall, the idea of creating public restrooms became a lot more appealing. But like all problems throughout human history, they could not solve it in a cultural vacuum. They couldn't even understand it except in the context of the norms of their time period. And it wasn't even a problem until new technology created the need and other technology offered a range of solutions. It was only after the advent of of technology that enabled the creation of multi-user restrooms that these issues really came to the fore. First of all, This was the Victorian time period. An era that valued privacy and decency and virtue and proper manners. And even in factories, these norms influenced how people felt about using toilets in a multi-user bathroom. Because there were more... More than one person in a restroom, these issues of of being disrobed and doing personal things in the presence of others uh, became a real issue for American society and made people start worrying about the need to keep men out of the women's restroom. 
But the second and arguably more influential norm, the one that is truly the origin of our current separation of bathrooms by gender, according to Kogan, is a widespread 19th century belief called the separate spheres ideology. An ideology that viewed women's proper place as being in the home, as raising children, as tending the hearth fires, and men's proper place as being in the public, uh, working in uh, factories, running for political office, a governing society. Kogan says that this cultural norm pervaded the 19th century, and it was the result of the same industrial revolution that led to the factories and the plumbing. Urbanization disrupted the norms of home life for many people. It separated husbands from wives as men commuted to their jobs, and it opened shops in towns, closing up the homesteads, all of which divided the genders and created new expectations of privacy. So what you find, actually, is until the end of the 18th century, the home was the center of production for American society. Goods were manufactured in the home. Goods were sold from the home. Men and women were present in the home, taking care of the full range of uh, both economic and family responsibilities. But then the Industrial Revolution came along. And the needs of the new economy required that manufacturing be centralized in factories. And so it was those, the events surrounding the centralization of production in the United States that led men to leave the home and women, at least initially, to stay behind. Uh, and what happens is the home, which had previously been a very open space, right? You'd have homes uh, open to the street. People would come in and out and buy your goods, whatever. Suddenly, a kind of veil of privacy descended over the American home. Uh, and the idea that the woman was now within this private realm became a common understanding of how we properly divide uh, social space, private homes, the public realm, women in private, men in public. This is another curious aspect of norms. What is often becomes what ought. And since change is often psychologically very painful for a variety of reasons, and the people who are most privileged don't notice that the way things are isn't all that great for the people who aren't, change doesn't have any priority. And in some cases, the people in power begin to see things as they are now, as the way they should be. If something remains a practice long enough, people come to believe in a sense that it's true. According to Victorian historian Catherine Hughes, people in this time period believed that men and women should only come together for breakfast and dinner. The outside world was dangerous and unclean and morally dubious, and thus no place for a virtuous, fragile woman. The home was a paradise, a place for civility where perfect angelic ladies could, in her words, counterbalance the moral taint of the public sphere, end quote. Now, if you've read Pride and Prejudice, you get the idea. Women learned to play music and read poetry while men went out into the world and got their hands dirty. The problem was that the reality 
of the 19th century economy belied that vision from very early on in the 19th century. Women started leaving the home by the 1820s uh, to work in factories and other public uh, spaces uh, to get involved in uh, civic and political activities. So women were in fact leaving the home uh, despite this cultural belief that they should remain because women were more virtuous than men, women were weaker than men, and therefore they needed special protection. Look, women should remain in the home, but we're past that. There's no way we can force women back into the home. Uh, women are present in these dangerous factories, uh, and because they're women, they need special protection. What we're going to do is to pass laws to require separate spaces in public workplaces where women can go uh, in order to protect their weaker bodies when their weak bodies begin to fail. Uh, working in a factory, we now will have these separate home-like havens uh, in the public realm that, in a sense, are surrogate homes, mimic the early 19th century ideology of the protective home for women. Uh, about mid-19th century, public libraries in the United States, which originally did not allow women to enter into them, when they finally opened their doors to women, they created special ladies' reading rooms where women could go outside of the sort of leering, lustful eye of men uh, uh, and have their virtue protected uh, when they entered a uh, library. There were separate cars on trains in the United States beginning in the 1840s called ladies' cars, uh, which were set aside for uh, women and their male escorts, which again were set up to protect weaker women who ventured into the public realm. And that became the vision that moved into the 20th century. By the mid-1800s, women were leaving home to work in factories, and they were fighting for their right to vote and to get formal educations and much more. And if you believed in preserving the separate spheres, that men and women should only cross paths at breakfast and dinner, then as we approached the 20th century, this created a lot of anxiety for you. Right, because there was this contradiction. Women were, per, were pervasive in the public realm, but in the back of lawmakers and policymakers' minds, women should not be in the public realm. And it is this conflict that I suggest led to this series of laws at the end of the century that tried to, in a curious way, uh, make real what at that time was a dead moral social ideology about the need for separate spheres. With new factories and new buildings and new cities exploding with new growth and the creation of all kinds of new public spaces, including public bathrooms, people writing laws and building codes decided that to keep the spheres separate, it just made sense to establish women's bathrooms as separate spaces from men's. These laws, uh, first enacted in Massachusetts and shortly thereafter in New York, 
and by 1920 in over 40 states. These laws were, in fact, adopted as an extension of protective legislation that had been adopted earlier in the century to protect uh, weaker women, which is what the belief was, who ventured into the public realm. How is this norm affecting us today? How is it changing the way we see the world and how we live our lives and what kind of harm is it doing? All of that after this break for a word from our sponsor. Last week, Amanda and I brought a meal from Blue Apron over to my parents' house. I brought over all the ingredients that came in the mail and made chicken meatloaf with mashed potatoes and green beans, and it was so good. I loved cooking with my mom, reading about the different ingredients off of the material that came with the recipe, and the final product fed the four of us no problem. I love to cook. I love getting lost in the process and learning how to make things I've been mindlessly eating my whole life. And over the next few days, I did that with Blue Apron tacos and pasta and catfish, all at our house, all in ways I had never had them before with ingredients I had never used before. Blue Apron ships fresh, high-quality, seasonal, pre-portioned ingredients that you often can't find in a grocery store straight to your house on a schedule you set. And for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers them along with easy-to-read, full-color recipes, photos, and additional information about where your stuff came from, from their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Check out this week's menu and get your first Three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. That's you're not so smart. You will love how good it feels and how good it tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And on this episode, we are discussing the separate spheres ideology. Now, these ideas about women have died a slow death over the last 100 years, and the struggle to change gender norms is ongoing. But the separate spheres ideology has mostly disappeared in the modern United States. There are hints of it everywhere, of course, but the widespread belief is strongly challenged. Yet, one of the products of that ideology, gender-segregated bathrooms, is still part of our daily lives. So why hasn't that changed? What my current research suggests is that there's a hidden culprit here, and that hidden culprit is something called a uniform building code. At the beginning of the 20th century, city building groups concerned about fires and other kinds of safety got together and began to draft the codes that all builders would use as a set of rules for construction, electrical work, foundations, walls, everything, including plumbing. And the first one was created in 1927, and after that, it was soon copied across the country. And within 
10 years, there were dozens and dozens of cities that had adopted it. And in the middle of this code, which ostensibly was being put together to protect the, uh, the safety and welfare of people uh, using buildings, was a provision that said, restrooms shall be separated by sex. Though we may aspire to create objective standards for things like building codes or bathroom laws, that's really hard to do. As Kogan explains, our laws inevitably embody the moral values of the era in which they are written. We are each surrounded and subsumed by culture. And sometimes, especially in the 20th century, the rate of cultural and technological change outpaces the slog of legislation. The first code has this provision within it. The codes, these codes get revised roughly every three years to adopt new industry standards on how to build walls and steel, and, right? And in the midst of each iteration, the sex separation provision sat there. So throughout the 20th century, the law in municipalities contained a requirement that restrooms be separated by sex that sort of sat there by inertia. And here we are, a hundred years later, and if you look at current laws, they still require that public restrooms be separated by sex and that people of one sex not use the restroom for the other. We don't have any control over the norms present in the world when we are born. They worm their way into our minds and change our brains as we grow into adults, learning how to be people from the people already around when we begin that process. And these norms of sexual segregation, even though they have faded significantly, they still influence our thinking and our emotions from a purely psychological perspective, because these norms are so influential and because most public buildings still have gendered bathrooms, I don't think anyone can really be faulted for wanting to use the one in which they are most comfortable, the bathroom that matches their gender identity. And that's true even if unisex bathrooms are an option. Right now, in cities across the country, transgender people are fighting to do just that. But not everyone is okay with this. Some people do not understand and reject the very idea of a transgender individual. The concept that your gender identity today might not match the one assigned to you at birth, that's difficult for them to accept. For instance, this is David Welch, a pastor and religious leader in Houston, who is very, very opposed to protecting transgender people from discrimination in public bathrooms. But the definition of gender identity was your inner sense of gender. Okay, so I can't discriminate against you based on your inner sense of gender. Does that make any sense to anybody? Okay, how do you define that? And, what, and my inner sense today may be different than what it is tomorrow. Welch is very opposed to any law that might expand or protect or establish the rights of LGBT individuals. And here he is talking about that at a community forum about a proposed anti-discrimination ordinance. I do not believe that sexual orientation, any kind of behavior, I don't care what it is, qualifies as a legitimate protected class equal to race. I don't. I don't accept that premise. It doesn't, it doesn't fly. 
In Houston, in 2014, the city passed an ordinance that would have made it illegal for businesses to prevent transgender people from using the bathroom that matched their gender identity. Now, that's not what the bill was designed to do. It just happened to be one of the many protections it afforded to LGBT people in addition to veterans and pregnant women and a dozen other categories that have yet to be included in federal anti-discrimination laws. In more than 200 cities across the country, and many in Texas, this sort of anti-discrimination ordinance has passed without incident. But in Houston, there was a tremendous backlash. And Welch became the sort of de facto spokesperson for area churches opposed to the ordinance. And if you lived in Houston in 2014, and you watched even a single afternoon of public television, there's a good chance you saw this commercial. Houston's Proposition 1 bathroom ordinance. What does it mean to you? Any man at any time could enter a woman's bathroom simply by claiming to be a woman that day. No one is exempt. Even registered sex offenders could follow women or young girls into the bathroom. And if a business tries Right to here in this black and white film-like commercial, a little girl is followed into the bathroom, into the stall by a strange man. And when she turns around in horror, the door slams behind her. For transphobic people, transgender women are just sexually deviant men in disguise. And that's why opponents of trans rights in Houston used a slogan over and over again, no men in women's bathrooms. And according to Terry Kogan, our guest from the first part of the show, they were banking on the idea that many people in Houston were still unsure about that T in LGBT, unsure what that exactly meant. And because of that, they could stoke those vestigial Victorian fears that brought about our modern bathroom norms in the first place, stoking them among people who might otherwise have supported the ordinance, and they hoped convincing them to vote to repeal it, thus taking with it all the other protections it afforded that had nothing to do with bathrooms. As Kogan wrote in The Guardian, they intended to resurrect the separate spheres ideology in part and evoke, quote, Visions of weak women being subject to attack by men if trans women are allowed to invade the public bathroom, end quote. This is mayor of Houston at the time, Anise Parker, speaking to reporters during all of this. They are lies. They are misinformation. 200 cities, 17 states have the same ordinances that we do or very similar wording that we do. This just doesn't happen. Despite millions of dollars and the efforts of people around the country, including the president and the Democratic candidates for president and companies like Apple, about a year after it passed, the public voted to repeal the ordinance by a wide margin, about 70 to 30. And that sparked a national conversation. Let's go to Houston, where an ordinance designed to protect the rights of gay and transgender people that drew support from the White House failed to pass. Not only is Houston the only big city in America without these protections, it's the only large city in the state of Texas without these protections. They exist in Austin, in El Paso, in Dallas, and in Fort Worth. These are common sense protections. Opponents use the slogan, no men in women's bathrooms, to fight the proposed law. Opponents said... It would allow men claiming to be women to use women's bathrooms and pose some kind of risk. I wish someone had told me when I was in high school that I could have felt like a woman when it came time to take showers and P.E. I'm pretty sure I would have found my feminine side and said, Coach, I think I'd rather shower with the girls today. There is nothing 
in this that speaks about allowing criminals into restrooms. It's already illegal for a criminal to dress as the opposite sex and enter a restroom to commit a crime. It's always been illegal, it is illegal, and it always will be illegal. The idea that you could go into a bathroom and do anything other than use the toilet is already illegal in Houston. There's also no evidence that this has ever been a problem in places that do have these laws. But unfortunately, the ads worked. As one Houston resident told BuzzFeed, quote, the only thing that I've heard is that it allows men who dress up like women going into the ladies' room. I need to tell you something, Wendy. I'm transgender. What? Did you notice the bow? I'm not comfortable with the sex I was assigned at birth, so I'm exercising my right to identify with the gender of my choice. Now get out of my way. I have to take a shit. We live in a different world that we live today. We do. But why? What's the why? The why is because we have lost our morals. We've lost the framework of, of protection of innocence and a lot of other th type of those things. This is a move away from that, not toward that. So the issue is, no, that may be the case. But what about my wife? Okay, forget the kids. Okay, if my wife walks into a restroom and a big six-foot-two ugly guy walks right in behind her, i got a problem with that. Now, he may claim to be a woman, but I'm going to drag him by shirt collar back out, and I'll go to jail. Did you know, at any given moment, there are thousands of troubled men waiting outside ladies' room doors thinking, oh, I wish I could go in there and commit crimes, but like a vampire, I must be invited in. Oh. I asked Terry Kogan, based on his research, his knowledge of gender norms and bathroom laws, what did he think? Based on your expertise, what do you think of these new bathroom laws that supposedly protect women and little girls from men pretending to be women? I'm just going to make that a big open question and then just see what do you think of those laws? So here's the bottom line. There are evil people out there who rape women, who attack women. There are evil people out there who attack children. Uh, these people who rape women and uh, pedophiles who attack children sometimes do it in bathrooms, and sometimes they do it in alleyways, and sometimes they do it in stairways. But the bottom line is this. These evil people have not been sitting around waiting for a municipality to adopt a statute saying that transgender people can use the bathroom that accords with their gender identity to do their horrific acts. The rapists and pedophiles do not need permission, have never sat around waiting for permission from a law to do the terrible things that they do. So ads like the one in Houston are total red herrings. Uh, they... Uh, they paint a group of people, transgender people, as somehow uh, uh, both uh, doing evil things to women and children and enabling others to do things to uh, women and children uh, that has nothing to do with reality. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and again, just to reiterate my earlier point, statistics show that it is transgender people who overwhelmingly are the subject of attacks in uh, public restrooms, and there is no evidence. I do not think there is evidence of a single incidence of a transgender person attacking either a woman or a child in a public restroom. Those ads are based on, on falseness, 
those ads are meant to evoke fear uh, and have no basis in reality. Despite their relative invisibility, a norm, even a dying one, can sometimes be harnessed and wielded like a weapon by conjuring up old fears from a bygone era. It's a great way to slow social change if you fear that change. When a social change threatens your ideology, fear is the simplest, easiest way to keep more minds from changing. So what do you do if you are on the other side? How do you combat fear if you refuse to use that as a tactic? If your city has just passed one of these laws and you know a backlash is coming, if you want to reduce prejudice and end discrimination without resorting to fear tactics, what do you, what do, you do? What do you do when these norms and ideologies on these issues are so strong? How do you change people's minds about transgender people or bathrooms or both or anything? How would you do something like that in the tiny window between a law passing and a vote that threatens to repeal it? That's what we're going to explore on the next episode of this podcast. And you'll hear a preview of what you're going to hear in that show after this short break. I've been telling you about the Great Courses Plus for a while now, and many of you have already signed up for this great video learning service, but now you have unlimited access to more than 7,000 fascinating video lectures taught by award-winning professors. So if you haven't signed up for this, this is the best time ever to do it because I have a special offer just for you are not so smart listeners. I'll tell you about that in just a second. Listen, the Great Courses Plus lets you learn about anything that interests you, science, history, how to cook, how to speak Spanish. You can watch these engaging online video lectures anytime, anywhere, using your TV, laptop, tablet, or smartphone. I recently started watching this course, The Science of Information, which is about the most influential yet probably least appreciated field in science today. Have you ever wondered what is information? Is it the data in your computer? Is that data the same stuff as what's in your brain or in your genes? According to mathematician Claude Shannon, information is the ability to reliably distinguish among possible alternatives. And never before in history have we been able to acquire, record, communicate, and use information in so many different forms. And in this course, you learn what all that means for fields like linguistics and cryptography and neuroscience and genetics and economics and quantum mechanics. I know you will love the great courses plus like I do. You get to get stuff like this, free streaming, get all the stuff you want. So sign up today. And as one of my podcast listeners, you'll immediately get one month free to start watching as many lectures as you want. Make sure you check out the one I'm watching, the science of information and start your free trial today by signing up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. 
On the next episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, you will meet people who are devoting their lives to figuring out how to reduce prejudice and change people's minds. I, I guess my view on it is now the real work begins. There is nothing you can say, there is nothing you can tell this person that's going to change their mind. We, we don't really know exactly why it works. You know, these people, they don't, they don't think of themselves as prejudiced people. They, they want to be supportive. The only way they're going to change their mind is by changing their own mind, by talking themselves through their own thinking, by processing things they've never thought about before, things from their own life um, that are going to help them see things differently. It's important to not just change attitudes for a day or two, but to really change someone's attitudes for a lifetime. What has happened to them throughout their life? Because, you know, no, these people are not born prejudiced. You know, it's up to the voter to persuade themselves, and it's up to the voter to think hard about these issues. And we, as the canvassers, are going to guide the voter on that journey. That's just unprecedented, right? On the next episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, the redemption of deep canvassing. Up next, a cookie, and then the end credits. On each episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. If Amanda, my wife, bakes those cookies and then I eat them right here on the show, you get a signed copy of You Are Not So Smart or You Are Now Less Dumb. Those are books I wrote about the stuff in this show. Now, this recipe, oh, by the way, send it to david at youarenotsosmart.com. That's how they get here. And this one came from Mark P. And Mark writes, I found this recipe for my girlfriend, now wife, and I looked for a cookie that had all of these ingredients, the ingredients that she loved, so I could give it a special touch. So what's in this thing? Well, we have semi-sweet chocolate chips and butter and brown sugar and regular sugar and an egg, vanilla flour, baking soda, salt, cinnamon, nutmeg, steel cut oats, macadamia nuts, and cardamom. Now, he did not name these cookies. I don't know what to call them. Let's say eat this cookie, and then uh, we'll decide after we've eaten it what it should be called. So here we go. First of all, this is a very sturdy, solid cookie. Uh, it's uh, If you squeeze it really hard, it'll start to sort of mush in. But at first glance, at first touch, it feels like it's uh, really hard, really sturdy. In fact, but when you bite into it, it is chewy. Here we go. Mm, oh, Mark. Wow. So it's an oatmeal cookie. It's an oatmeal cookie that's kind of salty and lots of nuttiness in there. Mm. But it's not a regular oatmeal cookie. This feels like um, this feels like this oatmeal cookie 
you know, it came from a small town. It grew up, uh, grew up in that small town, had a graduating class of 90 people and was really into science and building things and Legos and engineering and computers. And so went to college to be an engineer and then she graduated and she went to NASA. She got a job at NASA. She designed the hinges that open up the module that let the Spirit rover out onto Mars. And maybe no one even thinks about those hinges, but she thinks about them because her work is on another planet. And she goes home for the holidays and she's at the bar with her friends from high school and she just can't connect with them. They might as well be as distant as her work is from the Earth. She is on another world from those people cannot go back home again. That is what this cookie is. I'm calling these cookies, I'm calling these cookies oatmeal engineers. Oh, Mark P., you have elevated the oatmeal cookie to new heights. Uh, you've made, a, made an otherworldly oatmeal cookie, and a book is on its way. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart Podcast. Go to boingboingpodcasts.com for more great podcasts like this one. You can also go to youarenotsosmart.com for the show notes, for all the music you heard in the show, for links to the things we talked about, and for all the previous episodes of the show, which you can also find at iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Find us on Facebook at slash youarenotsosmart. Find us on Twitter at notsmartblog. I am at David McCraney. Send cookie recipes to David McCraney at youarenotsosmart.com. The opening music, that is Clash by Caravan Palace. And please, if you are enjoying these shows, support us on Patreon. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. You'll get extra shows, shows with no ads, and stuff we cut out of shows that we just couldn't fit into them. Patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> 